I'm going to take advantage of my being a guest preacher to ignore today's lectionary readings and preach on the occasion of my grandson's baptism. This congregation, more than most, is theologically attuned, and so we'll surely see that in many ways, baptism and Pentecost reverberate with one another, as it is Jesus who sends us the Holy Spirit and insists that baptism be done in the Spirit's name, as well as the Father and the Son. Every parent among us has been caught in the intellectual trap that their seemingly innocent and curious children have set for them. My grandson Jerome is a master of this, although his sister Ruby is certainly in his same league. I'm reading a, scary, a Richard Scarry picture book to Jerome, that one with 1,001 trucks and tractors. Look, Jerome, on this page is a bulldozer. See the man? He's pushing dirt. Why? <laughs> well, so he can fill that hole. Why? because it would be dangerous to have a big hole in the ground. People might fall, in, fall into it and hurt themselves. Why? Well, because of gravity. You see, gravity makes people fall down. <laughs> Why? Because that's the way gravity works. Why? Because, well, God made gravity to do that. Why? Well, because Look at the backhoe on the next page, Jerome. <laughs> or we say, that's just the way things are. In the end, we cannot fully explain all that's going on with a man in a bulldozer filling a hole. At the outer edge of children's questions lies mystery. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, is it not? How do we know God is here when we can't see him? Why is my brother so mean to me? Why did my fish die? Where do babies come from? Will I see grandpa in heaven? Will I see my fish in heaven? And the most philosophical of all, why do I have to do my chores? All these questions finally lead to mystery. These little people in our lives are God's means of teaching us adults about our ultimate duty to them. We think that our job as parents is to have ready answers for our children, to teach them the ways of God and man, to make them responsible and smart and courteous and kind, and to set them out in the world with enough manners and morals to, to uh, make it on their own. And these are surely important jobs for us. But really, in the end, I think our main job is to teach them that life is finally a great and wondrous mystery, a mystery of grace. That is why baptism is the perfect right to initiate us into the life of Christ. Try as we might, and we will try this morning, to understand what baptism means, we will soon come to the end of our rope, and we'll be left hanging over a precipice of the mystery of grace. The Apostle Paul's baptism of uh, theology of baptism, where the mystery of grace is so nicely summed up, is found in a classic text in Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, he says, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
Baptism, according to Paul, has something to do with these ultimate questions our kids ask us about, about death and life. More particularly, it has to do with Christ's death, which we know from the rest of the New Testament is the most complete and, in a sense, perfect death. For he not only suffered and died bodily, even worse, he experienced the haunting emptiness of ultimate alienation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was hell on that cross, and that is what Christ endured. So baptism is about Christ's death, and it's about ours. We are baptized into his death, Paul says, meaning that some essential part of us dies in baptism. As he put it elsewhere, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The great theologian Karl Barth put it this way, in Christ's suffering and dying for us, he says, we are exposed and made known as the proud creatures who want to be God and Lord and Redeemer and Helper, who have as such turned aside from God and are therefore sinners, the enemies of God, because our disposition to him is hostile. We are those who choose and have fallen prey to nothingness, debtors who cannot clear themselves, Rejected, therefore, and because rejected, perishing. The sentence which was executed as the divine judgment in the death of Jesus Christ is that we are these proud creatures, that I am a man of sin, and therefore I myself am nailed to the cross and crucified. But that is only part of the mystery of baptism. As Bart puts it elsewhere, Certainly the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ in death and the death to which we are delivered up in his death can never occupy us too much, but we, must, but we miss what he has done for us in it if we understand it in isolation from what he has received for us in his resurrection. Or as Paul put it, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. New life. It's, it's like the life of, a, of the newborn. It's like the new life of welcoming an adopted child into the family. It's like the new life of coming through life-threatening surgery. It's like the new life of finding work after a long season of unemployment. It's like the new life at the beginning of marriage and of a marriage restored after vows have been broken. And more particularly here, it's the new life of discovering that my sins are forgiven and I do not have to be afraid of death anymore. Now some think Paul is being figurative here. Going under the water, they say, argues, uh, they argue it represents our death. Can, coming up after uh, out of the water is like our resurrection. And baptism is only a visual reminder of such things. It's merely a symbol. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I don't believe in mere symbols. In some regions of China, for example, authorities are mortified when Christian churches place a cross at the pinnacle of their sanctuary roof. The officials are so troubled by this mere symbol that they drive up huge cranes and pull those crosses down. They realize that this symbol has some sort of power, a power to challenge the very foundations upon which their government is founded. 
Or take baptism. I mean, Muslims certainly don't, radical Muslims, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly don't think baptism is a mere symbol. They go out of their way to kill any former Muslim, having become a Christian, who has had water sprinkled on him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They don't shrug it off and say, it's just water and a bunch of Christian mumbo-jumbo. It's merely a symbol. No. They believe baptism does something. It's merely, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, it has power to change a person, to change who a person is. So for them, Christian baptism is a matter of life and death. And in this, we agree with them. It is indeed a matter of death and life. But what makes it so? <clears throat> How does it all work? What's the key to the miracle that is baptism? And what exactly is going on in this ritual? Some wonder if it's, it's the water. Maybe the water makes all the difference. And there's something to that. God seems pretty interested in water. The world was created, after, as you will recall, after the spirit brooded over the waters. After Noah's generation fell into abominations, the world was judged and cleansed by water. Also recall that Israelites passed through the water to gain their freedom. And recall that that same water came crashing down on the chariots of Pharaoh in judgment so that, as the scripture puts it, not one of them was left alive. On it goes through the Old and New Testaments and up to our day. Water makes our gardens blossom and flourish, but a deluge of water on a single afternoon can wash those very, water, those very gardens away. Likewise, not enough water, and we die of thirst. Too much water, and we drown. Water is judgment and death. Water is grace and life something akin to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Maybe God is using water once again to make something extraordinary happen in baptism, to judge and to redeem. Or maybe it's the words used. Christian baptism is always done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as commanded by Jesus. In some ways, these words are akin to wedding vows, are they not? They are words that bind Christ to us and therefore us to Christ, like wedding, uh, wedding vows bind. I take you to be my wife, I take you to be my husband. We all recognize these are not idle words, they're not mere words, but words with power to bind us one to another until death makes us part. Now during the actual baptism, we don't actually exchange vows with God, so there's a little bit of a difference here. Before the baptism, we say what we believe and how we intend to follow Christ. But this moment is more like the intentions at the beginning of a wedding when the bride and groom both say they have come to give themselves to each other in vows. But these intentions are not binding vows. And when it comes to the central act of baptism, the exchange of vows, so to speak, is no exchange at all. For our part, we say nothing. We just hear God's words fall upon us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. These are God's vows to us because through these words and with water, he takes us unto himself. He makes us one with Christ's death and one with his resurrection and therefore one with him forever. Not even death can drive us apart. 
Some say, it's not the water, it's not the words, it's not the ritual. Baptism doesn't do anything at all. It's our faith that we bring to baptism. When we believe, then baptism has this binding power. Except that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say our belief binds us to Christ. He says that baptism does. Besides, can we really believe that we can do or say or believe anything so as to bridge the seemingly irreparable divide between holiness and sin, between love and selfishness, between the infinite and the finite, between the eternal and the mortal? Those chasms cannot be bridged by, just, by a person just saying, I believe. Doesn't it make much more sense that such a metaphysical divide can only be bridged by the metaphysician himself? If something like this is going to work, if something this extraordinary is going to happen, it's going to take a God who is so holy and just that he will condemn sin, and a God so gracious he's willing to forgive that sin. A God so mighty, he can do such a thing, and a God so humble, he will become not only human, but sin, that we might be redeemed. And this, of course, is the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Faith is not something that makes this all happen. The divide has been bridged. The job is finished on the cross by someone else. Now, faith is really important. By faith, we recognize the startling miracle of grace, of the merciful reality that characterizes our existence. Without faith, we would live in a state of that utter alienation that Christ experienced on the cross. But baptism isn't about what we do, what we think, or what we believe. It's about what God has done in Christ and is doing to us as the water and the word fall over us. This mysterious connection between God and us in Christ is woven all through Paul's theology, which is summed up quite nicely in Colossians. I have become the church's servant by the commission of God, by the commission God gave me, uh, Paul says, to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to God's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery into which we are incorporated in the water and the words of baptism. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the children among us won't let us off that easily. So why does God do all this? Because he loves us. Why? Well, because he's love. Why? Because, well, that's who he is and what he does. That's just the way things are. And with that, we're at the edge of the precipice called the mystery of grace. We're now looking at something akin to the starry heavens, which prompted the psalmist to wonder, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you, you have set in place, 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. We might very well say the same thing when we witness the starry wonder called baptism. What is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you so care for them? I know, uh, Micah and Katie, that you have given very practical answers to Jerome about his baptismal why, so that you can receive the bread in communion with Ruby and Mom and Dad. <laughs> You've taken a very concrete and mundane approach to helping him understand, and this, in fact, is sound theology. For God has a habitual interest in the ordinary as a way of revealing himself to us, like in bread, like in wine, like in water. And someday you'll be able to teach him that he's also receiving the bread of life. In the meantime, he and Ruby will continue to plague you with all sorts of questions about many things. And you'll be able to answer a few, and a few you won't. And like many relatives in our family, you'll say, let's ask Grandpa. <laughs> or Uncle Mark, as the case may be, because he seems to know about these things. And some of those questions I will be able to answer. But none of us will be able to ever answer why God loves incorrigible people like us, why he went to such lengths to justify our existence and to redeem our lives, why he chose water and words of baptism to incorporate us into his body, and especially why his mercy is boundless. And when we're asked questions by young or old about any of that, We'll just have to say, that's the way things are. That's the incomprehensible, wonderful way things are. Amen. <laughs>